let's pray and we're going to get into our message. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. Just like that song says, God, we experience your goodness every day. Forgive us for taking it for granted. Forgive us for taking for granted the days we wake up feeling healthy and strong. Because there might be a day that comes where we're not so healthy. Forgive us, God, for taking for granted the days that we maybe abuse, even in the slightest way, our family members, God. Because there might be a day where they're not there to cherish. God, help us in this moment just to be struck in our hearts about the many ways that you have been good to us. And God, as we open your word, as we're looking at this great romance, how you have spoke everything into existence to cultivate a people for yourselves, a, a family for the Father and a bride for the Son, God, that you would reveal yourself afresh to us today, to maybe think about you in a way that we've not thought about in a long time, or maybe even before. And that revelation, God, would draw our hearts closer to you, that we would love you in a greater way, God, because you're worthy of it. You're worthy of everything that we are. And the truth is, God, in you has found the deepest and greatest satisfaction that nothing in this life can provide. So, God, we've come here for an encounter. We've come for an awakening. We've come for revival. We've come for your touch. Fill us, Holy Spirit, with your presence. Speak, move, heal. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we're in the book of Genesis. I'd encourage you to be reading through the book of Genesis as we're going through this study. We're going to be in chapters 13 through 15 today. We're not going to read all of these passages. We'll really just highlight a section in chapter 14, but I'm going to summarize the story for us so that we can kind of see where we are at this point. And today we're going to really see that our God is a God who fights for his people. God fights for you. I don't know if, if you've thought about this. We understand that he has fought in the past. He's done some things. But our God is a warrior God. And he fights for his people. In Genesis chapter 13, we're in this place in the story where God has taken the people. He's rescued humanity from the flood, from the, the wickedness that was happening before the flood. He, humanity was regrouping, regathering. But in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel is built really to overthrow God, to rid God in culture and society, to remove God's hand on, and authority on humanity. And God separates the languages. He, developed, he separates people into tribes. And at this point, the tribes began to uh, leave the, the central location of this area in Babylon and begin to settle in other parts of the world. In, in uh, antiquity, this is called the Uruk expansion. As we can see, people begin to leave this centralized location and, and settle in other areas. And out of this expansion, God calls on a man. He chooses a man named Abram who loves God, who believes in God, and as his family settles about 900 miles away from Babylon, he calls him even beyond outside of his father's home into a special land that God has cultivated and prepared for him, because at this moment, God is choosing the one to whom all of his people will come from. Everyone that will be the special people of God is going to come from this one man, this one family, and his name is Abram. And so God is, is testing him. He's testing him by calling him to faith, calling him into action, and Abram is obeying and being blessed 
by God. And in chapter 13, as Abram has finally settled into this land, a famine hits the land, and God tells Abram he needs to go to Egypt. And so I guess the guy's used to moving around, so it's like, okay, here we go. We just got settled. Now we're going to go down to Egypt because of the famine. And so as they're heading down to Egypt, something happens in Abram's heart. He starts getting freaked out. I mean, the guy starts wigging out. He gets riddled with anxiety. And, you know, anytime you act out of fear or develop a plan out of fear, it's never a good plan. But, but he's just riddled with fear. Why? Because his wife is hot. And he's 75 to 80 years old. And she's so gorgeous. She's about the same age as Abram. She's so gorgeous. He's afraid that if they get to Egypt, that all the Egyptians are going to see her and be like, we're going to kill him so we can have her. And so he develops this, this plan that says, you know, when we get there, we're going to tell the Egyptians, you're my sister, so that they won't kill me and all will be good. And so his plan, really, when he gets to the land, was to lie to the king. Now, you might get away with lying to the king for a while, but has there ever been a point in history in any nation, in any story, when you lie to a king that it goes well for you? No. What do kings do? When they find out you've betrayed them, they kill you, right? So, so we already can see that this is a bad plan. You know, that he did, Pharaoh finds out he lied. This is not going to go well for Abram. But this is the plan. They get down there, and sure enough, what happens? It's a self-fulfilled prophecy. They get down there. All the Egyptians are whistling at his wife, and, and they say, no, he's, she's not my wife. She's my sister. And what happens? Pharaoh takes a liking to Sarai and says, you know what, I'm going to take her as my wife. So he brings her into his house as a wife and starts giving Abram all these livestock and servants as a compensation for taking his sister wife as, as a wife. Now, if you can think about this scenario and how this is really going for Abram, what is worse, fearing your, for your life or fearing your wife? Can I get an amen, gentlemen? I mean, what, what's worse? Think about this, right? I'm afraid I'm going to get killed, and so I'm going to now prostitute my wife into Pharaoh's house so that my life is spared, but I'm going to put her through all of this stuff. I don't want to be in that conversation. I don't want to be in the room when that, when that little thing, that spat gets worked out because to save his own skin, he has Sarah lie. But God saw what was happening. God saw that Abram wasn't walking in faith. He was walking in fear. And out of this fear, he was making all these dumb decisions because he forgot whose God belonged to him, who, who God was. And so knowing his heart, knowing what now is happening to Sarai because she didn't have a choice in the matter. She was thrust into this, and now their whole relationship is messed up. And, and God knew his promise was not to bless the world through Pharaoh and Sarai. It was to bless the world through Abram and Sarai. God begins to fight for Abram's marriage. God begins to fight for the heart of both Abram and Sarai because he's not only concerned with their heart, their emotions, their well-being, but he's concerned with their relationship. And so God begins to send plagues onto Egypt, so much so that Pharaoh wakes up to the reality, hey, taking this woman into my house was a bad idea. Something is amiss here. So he goes to Pharaoh, and he, or he goes to Abram, Pharaoh goes to Abram and says, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? It's like, and look what you've done to my house. He says, take your wife and all your stuff and get out. And this is amazing because Pharaoh didn't ask for any of the gifts back. 
He let Abram keep everything that he gave him. And this is kind of a shadow of what would happen many years later when the descendants of Abram, Israel, finds themselves back into Egypt as slaves. God sends plagues, and as they are set free and on the way out of Egypt, the nation of Egypt loads them up with every precious jewel, gem, and treasure so that they're better off than they were when they entered. This is a shadow of things to come in the future. But God, nonetheless, delivers Abram and Sarai. And what I love about what this shows about God and how God fights for us, when God does a work in the midst of our mess, we're often way better off after the fact than we were even before. That God works through our mistakes and our failures, our, 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 our actions out of fear and anxiety, our missteps. He works in that to produce something beautiful and something good. You know, I don't know where you are today. You might be struggling in your marriage today. You might be struggling with your kids. You might be struggling in your job or with a, a friendship or some type of relationship. There might be something that's just a mess. But you need to know today that God is fighting for your emotions. God is fighting for your heart. This is what one of the attributes of God because of his love and care for you. He is fighting, number one, for our emotions. Why? Because your heart determines the course of your life. The book of Proverbs says that. Guard your heart above everything else because it determines the course of your life. Your heart is precious to the Lord. In Psalm 56, verse 8, hear the, the intentionality and hear the intimacy this verse reveals about God's father heart to his people. In Psalm 56, verse 8, it says, You, meaning God, keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle, and you've recorded each one in your book. Those nights when you cry yourself to sleep, and you stain your pillowcase with tears, those aren't wasted tears. Your tears don't just evapor evaporate and go into nothing and become a faded and forgotten memory. God holds them all in his bottle, records them all in his book. Why? Because your heart matters to God. He loves you. He loves you perfectly. Your heart is precious to the Lord. So he's going to fight for your heart. He's going to fight to deliver you from anxiety, from fear, from depression, and the struggles that come through these different circumstances. Number two is God also fights for us physically. God is not just a spiritual warrior. He's also a physical warrior. In Genesis 14, uh, we get to this point in the story where Abraham and Lot have to separate. They have to part ways. God had blessed them so much that they had become so wealthy, they had so much cattle and livestock that their servants couldn't tell their, their, their livestock apart, and they were fighting over the different uh, grassy areas and places to feed their cattle. And so they started fighting, and this was a problem. And so they, they had just had this tumultuous turmoil in their camp. And I can imagine maybe Abraham or Lot crying out to God about this situation, like, oh God, you've blessed me so much. You, you've given me too much. Now we can't have any peace in our home. You've, you, you've made me too rich. I've made too much money. Said no one ever, right? Like there's, there's no one ever that would complain to God. But you can imagine that, God, why, why are you allowing this to happen? Well, I gave you so much stuff, right? There was a philosopher, a great philosopher, uh, back in the day that said, you know, the more money we come across, the more problems we see. And, uh, and so this is what was happening in this land with uh, Abraham and Lot. 
But they, uh, they come to an agreement. Abram, knowing that God had given him all the land, he ha- takes Lot up into a high point, and he, they look at the land, and they say, we're going to divide this up. You take your family one way. We're going to go another. Lot takes all of his people to the plush land in the, the Dead Sea uh, plain, uh, the place that looked good and prosperous, and Abram went to the other side that was less prosperous. And, uh, and they separated so they didn't have the schism or fight any longer. And Lot, you know, he was looking at this land thinking, man, it's, it's, there's a lot of grass, there's a lot of vegetation, there's, the sea is here, everything looks well, there are these big cities, Sodom and Gomorrah are in the, the general area, this looks really great for me. But it's not long after this that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding nations, there are five nations altogether, that were getting tired of being under the thumb of King Caterliamar, who was the king in Babylon. And so they began to revolt and fight to free themselves from this oppression. And King Caterliamar, in the land of Shinar, or Babylon, he was like, "Uh uh-uh, you're going to be submitted to me, and it's a permanent thing. So he gets three other kingdoms he was kind of in charge of. Their kings, they rallied an army together, and they began to war against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah in the plain. So you had an alliance of four under King Caterliamar, an alliance of five kingdoms with Sodom and Gomorrah. They went to war, and the kingdoms, the, the alliance of five was decimated. They, they weren't able to overcome King Caterliamar's hordes. And so they began to retreat for their lives, and because the Dead Sea area had tar pits and salt pits, that, that were in the surrounding area, they fell into these, and their armies were essentially captured, and they weren't able to go back and defend their cities. So the alliance of the four under King Cater Liamar, they stormed their cities, sacked their towns, took all of their possessions, all their goods, every good thing, and decimated these villages. And Lot being in the household of, or in the city of Sodom, was captured, his whole household was taken into captivity, all of his possessions, except for one servant who was able to get away. And that servant made his way to Abram, where Abram had settled. And he told Abram, look, this war happened, the the cities were destroyed, all the goods were taken, Lot and his family were taken, everything that he owned was taken, and I'm the only one left to tell you the tale. And Abram was devastated with the news. And so he rustled up 318 of his servants that were trained for war and pursued King Caterliamar and the four kingdoms, the alliance of the four, that were against the kings of Sodom. Now, in extra-biblical writings, they talk about this specific event. The King Caterliamar is said to have 800,000 troops between the four armies. 800,000. We don't know how many the Alliance of the Five had, but we do know that King Caterliamar won the war. So what it, whatever the other army had, it wasn't enough to defeat this king and his alliance. But Abram decides to take 318 servants into war against this army, even if King Caterliamar only had 8,000 warriors. That's still impossible odds. 8,000 to 318, or 800,000 to 318. But this is, this is the story. This is what's happening. And here we're going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 14, verse 14, about what happens when Abram pursues this king. In verse 14 it says, When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized 318 trained men who had been born into his household. 
He pursued Kaderliamar's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Kaderliamar's armies, his armies fled, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So just think about just what just happened here. 318 trained servants take on, in the middle of the night, this massive army, and they win. They win. Sent them running for the hills. It might have been incredible strategy or incredible skill, but Abram recovered everything the alliance of the four had taken from these other five kingdoms, from the cities of the plain, including all of Lot's stuff. And as they're taking inventory, as Abram and his men are taking inventory about what they had recovered, the kings go out to meet him, the ones that had been captured. They go out to meet him, and there is one man in particular who shows up that the Bible has never talked about or mentioned before until this point. In verse 17, here's what it says. It says, After Abram returned from his victory over Kaderliamar and all of his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And here's the individual, Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with his blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he recovered. So here this guy comes out, this priest of God, comes to Abram, and Abram gives him a tenth of everything that he won, all the spoils. This is the first time also we read a name for God, which is the God Most High in English, but in the Hebrew it's El Elyon. Or El is actually the Canaanite name for God, and Elyon means supreme. In other words, the Most High means this is the supreme God. The God above all gods. There is none like him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And beloved, this is who our God is. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. There is none like him. There is none in all of creation. And Melchizedek gives Abram this blessing from winning the war. First, confirming Abraham's identity. That Abram is the one who is blessed by the supreme God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this blessing was to pass on to his lineage, to every generation coming after Abram. But it was not a blessing that was relegated to just his physical descendants. It was relegated to all the nations, all the families of the earth that would come through him in faith in regards to the adoption of sons to God. In Romans 4.16, Paul writes, So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like who? Abraham. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. In other words, Paul is saying this salvation that we receive through Jesus, it's a salvation that was millennia in the making. That when God gave this promise and he blessed Abram, the intent was that through Abraham's life, all those who pattern their lives after Abraham, believing in God, trusting in God, that they too would become the children of God. So Abram is the father of all who believe by faith. This blessing passes to all who repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus. We become adopted into the family of God, into the family of Abraham. You, like Abraham, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you are the blessed of God 
Most High. You are the blessed of God Most High. And what comes with that blessing? But only the greatest and most fiercest ally in battle. The one who is unchallengeable. The one who enabled Abram's men to fight valiantly when they were outnumbered and they were outgunned. Think about regular warfare. There is no possible way they could have won or should have won if it weren't for a supernatural deliverance by God. Melchizedek reveals that Abram fought the battle, but it was God who defeated his enemies. The blessed of God have a mighty ally in heaven. Psalm 24, verse 8 says, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord invincible in battle. Somebody say invincible in battle. He's invincible. No one can beat him. No one, nothing can beat our God. He's supreme. He's all-powerful. Romans 8, 31 says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Is God, if God is for us, who can be what? Against us. Right? The invincible God, the creator of heaven and earth, the supreme, El Elyon, the God most high, is the one who is for us. And if God is for us, then what do we have to fear? Why did Abram fear Pharaoh when El Elyon was his God? Why do we fear what we fear when El Elyon is our God? See, there are really three kinds of battle that we face in life. Number one, they're the ones that God sends you into. They're the battles that God sends you into, like the nation of Israel. When they were going to enter into the promised land, Joshua led them to Jericho, and God sent them to fight. And there was an impossible army that seemed impossible, and the, they were scared to go into the fight. But what God told them to do is march around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, give a shout. And when they gave a shout, the walls, the impenetrable walls came tumbling down. They went up into the city unopposed, and they won the battle. When God is fighting for you, when he sends you into battle, he will make a way for your victory. And it'll be supernatural, and it'll be undeniable that God is the one who gave you the victory. When God sends you into battle, we don't have to fear because we know the victory is already ours. Number two, they're the battles that we take God into. God doesn't always send us into a fight. Sometimes we find a fight and bring God with us. Um, God did not send Abram to rescue Lot. He didn't come to Abram and say, you know what, you need to go get your nephew. You need to go bail him out. Abram was moved in his heart, one, because he loved his nephew, but two, it was, unjust, it was unjust what was happening to him. Lot was there minding his own business, and a king came and captured him. It wasn't for anything that he did other than he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so Abram went to deliver his nephew because it was unjust. He was a victim of someone else's crime. And God has a heart for injustice. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God, through the prophet Micah, is sharing his heart with the nation of Israel. And he says, O people, the Lord has told you what is good and what he requires of you, to do what is right or to do justly, to walk in righteousness, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That God has a heart for justice, for righteousness. God wants his people to open their eyes to the hurting around them, not to drift through their days ignoring the problems around them, but to engage, to stand in the gap for someone who is in need, who is lost, who is hurting, who has no voice, who needs someone to fight for them. 
In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah, or God through this prophet, is, is rebuking the nation of Israel for being so piously religious, but yet having no heart for people who are in need. And he's rebuking them for fasting and doing all this ceremony without a heart for what God cares about. And in verse 6, he's essentially saying, I don't want religious participation. I want cultural transformation. I want you to walk in my heart, to deliver my heart into the world, to advance the kingdom by delivering people from their oppression, by setting them free. He says in verse 6, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. God has called his children, his people, not just to enjoy salvation, where we know one day we're going to get to heaven, but he's given us his Holy Spirit, the power that birthed the universe into creation to walk in this world and bring light into the darkest places. And sometimes when we see a need, we see someone hurting, we see an area, whether it's homelessness or poverty or foster care or disease, and our in us becomes this burden that says, I need to do something, I need to act, I need to help. And we step out and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do this on, on behalf of God. I'm going to work towards righteousness and help deliver this need. God will go with us and fight alongside of us because he fights for the things that he's passionate about. And he's passionate about broken people. And when his children have his heart and they go to war on what he cares about, you better believe that God Most High is going to be there in the fight. They're the battles he sends you into, the battles you take him into. And number three, they're the battles that find you. Sometimes you're just minding your own business like Lot. Lot was in the city of Sodom, and the alliance of the four under King Caterliamar came and sacked Sodom. He was taken by surprise. He had no defenses, and he was captured. But what did God do? Did God abandon him? No. He rose somebody up to deliver him. And sometimes we can be minding our own business, life can be good, and all of a sudden the floor can fall out from underneath us. We can find ourselves in a struggle, in a stronghold, in a battle, and we feel like we were taken by surprise. But God's not abandoned you. He's fighting for you too. And he's going to raise somebody up to intercede and to stand in the gap for you. When I was uh, in high school, about my junior, senior year, I don't remember exactly when, but uh, one day I was leaving school just like normal, and this uh, guy that I knew in my school named Brandon came up to me uh, after school one day, and he said, hey, uh, did, did Nick come talk to you? And this other kid that lived in my neighborhood named Nick. And I was like, no, why? And he said, because he was going around the school getting people to uh, join up with him because they were planning on jumping you after school. They were going to uh, knock you out. And I'm like, why? I don't even talk to the guy. You know, we didn't get along like two years ago, but I haven't really had a conversation with him. I had no idea that he was angry with me or didn't like me and he w was going to come for me and and he said this is what was going on he they was they were coming after you but brandon said you know but don't worry because i took care of it and i'm like what do you mean you took care of it well it just so happened in eighth grade uh one day i think i had pe in first hour we had a new kid come to school which was brandon he was from another city uh, school in the city 
and he was sitting by himself, and, and I thought, well, you know, I moved around a little bit when I was younger, so I knew what it was like to be the new kid, so I thought I'd go over and talk to him. So I went and talked to him and made friends with him and, and found out he liked football and different things, and, and I was like, okay, well, I can introduce you to some people that you might get along with, and after class, I introduced him to the, some of the other football players, and he connected with them, and that was about the last time I saw Brandon. I did, didn't really hang out with him after that. We had a couple classes together, and we were you know, uh, nice acquaintances, but that was it. Well, the day that Nick was coming after me and Brandon was talking to me, he said, I took care of it because I will never forget the day that I was new to school and you were my first friend. And so I told Nick, it doesn't matter how many bruises you lay on him, I'll lay more on you and then some. You don't touch him. And so I didn't have to fight that battle. God fought it for me. He rose somebody up to stand in the gap. And sometimes when we find ourselves in a situation, somebody's against us, somebody's coming for us, someone's falsely accusing us, uh, maybe something's happening we didn't see, we're not alone. God is there. And he's raising people up. This is why the body of Christ is so important, why a church family is so important. Because when you're at your lowest, the church can get on their knees and call on heaven and unleash the heaven ar heavenly armies in your behalf. This is one of the purposes for the church, that we can be there for one another. Because when we find ourselves caught off guard in a battle we didn't foresee, we didn't enter into willingly, God is going to fight for us. And he's going to raise people up on our behalf. So God fights for us emotionally. God fights for us physically. Number three, he also fights for us spiritually. Abram rightfully won the spoils from the war. He was a righteous man. Uh, he didn't want to keep all the spoils for himself. He didn't need it. He was very wealthy. So he promised to return everything back to the kings that he had won, except for what his servants had already eaten and a tribute that he gave to king of Salem, the king Melchizedek. And why this is significant in this story is because up until this point, Melchizedek is never mentioned. We don't know anything about him until he shows up in this moment. And after this, we don't really hear his name again until one time in the Psalms and then later on in the book of Hebrews. So Melchizedek is the king of this place called Salem, modern-day Jerusalem. What we know about it, if we remember the story, the history, is Noah's son Ham, who committed a crime against his father, his son Canaan was cursed. In Canaan, his descendants settled in this land, and they followed the way of their father. They were not righteous people. They were wicked people. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain were, were synonymous with abomination, sexual wickedness of every sort. They didn't revere God. They didn't worship God in the least. They were known for immoral depravity of every sort. But yet we hear we have a king in this land of Canaan is the land that they were in who was a king of this city called Salem who was also a priest of the Almighty God who worshiped the true and living God and it's he who Abraham or Abram gives a tithe the first 10 percent of what he won and this is curious because prior to this moment when Abram worshiped the Lord what did he do he offered a sacrifice he would build an altar, he would offer a sacrifice, and that's how he would worship God. But in this moment, he doesn't offer a sacrifice. He gives the wealth, the first tenth of the wealth, to this man, Abram. And so it's interesting uh, what's happening here. We need to take a look at who this guy really is to see what's happening here. 
First, the city of Salem, again, is the city of Jerusalem. In Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, he begins to unpack what this guy, who this guy is, and what these names mean. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We just read that in Genesis. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. We just read that in Genesis. He is first, Melchizedek, uh, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Somebody say king of righteousness. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Now look at the next. He says, and then he is also king of Salem, the city that he's from. King of Salem means king of what? Peace. So Jerusalem means the city of peace. And here Melchizedek is the king of peace. So again, his name means king of righteousness, king of peace. Or he is from the city of peace. Who is it that we know is the king of righteousness? Who is also the king of peace? Think about that for a moment. Verse 3, here's what the Bible says. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor an end of life, but resembling who? The Son of God. And he continues a priest forever. Who's the Son of God? Jesus. Who's the King of Righteousness? Who's the King of Peace? Who has no beginning? Jesus. Who has no ending? Jesus. He was never born and he never died. But he resembles the Son of God. This is why Jesus, when he was speaking to the Pharisees in John 8, 58, he could say... I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Because Jesus is pre-existent. Mary was not his birth. He had no beginning. He came into the world when Mary delivered him, but that was not his beginning. He always existed. He was with God, and he is God. And this fact, many theologians consider this to be what is called a Christophany, a time where Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation or the birth on Christmas Day. This is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament prior to being born in the human flesh. And I believe Jesus is showing up here with Abram because he's revealing to us what the Messiah would be like to give us, the nation of Israel, something to look to, someone to look forward to in the Messiah, what he would be like. And the prophets confirmed that this Melchizedek is a picture of the Messiah in the future. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it's prophesied this, The Lord has taken an oath, and it will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God had established Jesus before time as an eternal high priest, the priest of God, after the divine order of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, the priests of Israel were under the Levitical line after Aaron. They were the, the Levitical priests under the sons of Levi. But Jesus would not be a Levitical priest. He would be a priest from a higher and more divine order. He would be one whose beginning was before time, whose ending will never be known. What's interesting is you compare Melchizedek to in the divine order versus the priests of Levi. Melchizedek was a king who ruled in righteousness. Priests don't rule, but Jesus rules. So Jesus is a king just as Melchizedek is a king. Jesus is a priest just as Melchizedek is a priest. The Levitical priests would intercede on, to God on behalf of the people of Israel. 
and Jesus, or Melchizedek, intercedes on behalf of the people. Our enemy, the devil, is called the accuser, who accuses God before the throne, accuses us before God before the throne day and night, and Jesus right now is before the throne interceding for us day and night. The priests of Aaron offered animal sacrifices to cover the sins of many for a time, but Jesus offered his own blood through a sacrifice to wash away our sin for all time. What's also interesting about Melchizedek is what he brings as a gift to Abram when he blesses him. In Genesis 14, 18, it says, When Melchizedek, the, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, he brought Abram some what? Bread and wine. Is this a coincidence? Is it possible that in this moment, in prophetic revelation, that the pre-incarnate Christ arrives in human history, reveals himself before the New Testament, has a communion meal with Abram as a prophetic act showing how, through Abram, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That there's a covenant that will come through the body and blood of Jesus. And that through the worship of God and belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that the blessing of adoption would come, that we'd become sons and daughters of the Most High God, and the blessing and favor of God would be restored to those that follow. In Isaiah 53, we're not going to read it, but at length it tells what Christ accomplishes on the cross. It says that he bore our griefs, our sicknesses, our weaknesses in our body, Christ bore on the cross. It says that he carried our sorrows, our emotional uh, scars and wounds he carried in the cross. It says by our, our um, he was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, that he carried our sins in the cross, our spiritual uh, depravity, our spiritual brokenness in the cross. And that was through that suffering that our peace, the shalom of God, that wholeness and completeness could come to those who believe in Christ Jesus. In the cross of Christ, we see God fighting for us and delivering us uh, emotionally. We see him delivering us and fighting for us physically. We see him delivering us and fighting for us spiritually so that in him we could find victory in every area. The Most High God, El Elyon, the King of Righteousness, continues even today fighting for us in these three realms, emotional, physical, and spiritual, that we would not just withstand the battles that we face. But Romans 8.37 says, No, Despite all these things, what's that say? Overwhelming victory. What's that say? Overwhelming victory. Overwhelming victory belongs to who? Us in Christ Jesus. Overwhelming victory. Not just a little victory. Not just I barely made it. And I'm going to need six months of recovery time. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus. He's fighting in all realms of attack, emotional, physical, and spiritual, not just for victory, but for supernatural, overwhelming victory for those who believe, for you and for me. That doesn't mean that when he sends us into the fight, we're not at risk for being wounded, bruised, and scarred. Or when we take him into the fight, that we might not suffer some loss. Or when we find ourselves in a battle we didn't foresee and it takes us by surprise that we won't go through difficulties and hard times. But it does mean we can be rest assured that no matter how many lumps we take, the victory is ours. Because our enemy can take our health. Our enemy can take our finances. Our enemy can take our physical security. 
but he can never separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4, 4 says, But you belong to God, my dear children, and you've already won a victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. The one in you is the most high God, and he is for you. The one in you is also the God who is covering you. Genesis 15, 1, and we'll come to a close. The Lord at another time says, After these things, the word of the Lord, Jesus, came unto Abram in a vision. And this is what he said. He said, Fear not, I am your shield, and I am your exceeding great reward. Your God is your shield. He is your covering. And not only is he your covering, why did Abram not need all the spoils that he won? It's because there's one whose value was infinitely worth more than anything this world can provide. That God was his reward. In God we find all fullness of satisfaction. In God we find the answer to every cry in our heart. In God we find our purpose. In the Lord Jesus Christ we find everything we could ever want and all we would ever need. He has a reward too precious for a price tag. And he has a treasure far more secure that can ever be stolen. He's reigning over us in righteousness. He's filling us with peace. And he's continually, even now, interceding on your behalf. To ensure that we discover breakthrough in every realm, mind, body, and soul in the midst of the fight. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment as we go into a time of prayer and response. As the music begins to play, what battles are you facing right now? What struggles do you have in your life, church? What's in your life that you're wrestling against? Is it a relationship with a parent? A spouse? A child? Is it financial? Is it physical? What in this life has you bogged down with fear, anxiety, and worry? What might have you been running to to find security in that you've not been running to God? I want to challenge you today to find your hope in the Lord. God is the God of breakthrough. And today He wants to deliver some of us from the weights that we've been carrying. He wants to deliver some of you from an anxiety and a fear that has just held you down for so long. Some of you are facing battles in your health and it's got you so low that you don't even have the strength to trust God anymore. But our God is a good God who's not given up on you. He's fighting for you. And he's waiting for you to come to him and surrender again and say, you know what, God, regardless of the outcome, I'm going to trust you with my whole life. There's some of you in here that God is fighting for spiritually. Your heart has wandered for so long. And it's still wandering. You like the idea of God, but... You're having a hard time getting to that place of surrender to say, God, I'm going to choose to believe that your purpose for my life and your will for my life is greater than anything I could hope for in myself. 
And God's heart is aching as he's watching you make these decisions out of fear, decisions out of anxiety, and bringing brokenness into your life and into those that you're connected with. And he's calling on you, son. He's calling on you, daughter, to come to me. Come to me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't depend on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and I will direct your path. Come to me, child. Give me your heart. You are the blessed of the God most high. You are loved infinitely and perfectly. God is not disappointed with you. He's anxious to lead you to becoming who he created you to be. Lord, I just pray for everyone here in this moment. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would speak, you would work, and you would draw. I don't know what everyone's carrying this morning, but I do know, God, that you're at work. I just pray, God, for the next few moments as we go into a time of prayer and response, that we would respond to you, and that faith and hope would rise in this place, God. I pray if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Savior, God, that they don't have a relationship with the Lord, that they would not leave here until beginning that relationship. So God, we just leave this to you now to do your work in Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around us. We're just going to a time of prayer. If you need prayer for any reason, there's a burden in your heart, there's an issue, maybe the Spirit of God spoke to you about something specific today. At this time, we invite you to stand and come forward for prayer. I invite my wife forward to come for prayer in our prayer team. You make your way down to the front. We're going to pray with you. We're going to raise you up. We're going to stand in the gap for you. In just a moment, we'll receive the Lord's Supper. If you have a testimony to share, God has done a miracle in your life this week, and you want to encourage the body, you want to encourage the church, then you can come too. We'll share those testimonies.